Now that is a text for Labor Day weekend. <laughs> if we're, we haven't estranged everyone already and driven everyone away, that will do it. I imagine Jesus' PR firm was scrambling after this talk that he gave, especially because it's, a, it's yet one more instance of a theme that he's been repeating from earlier in the gospel. In Luke 9, you may remember a man follows Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go, but first let me go and bury my father. And what does Jesus say in response? Let the dead bury their own dead. And again, you can hear all of those people responsible for Jesus' public image gasping, scrambling, trying to qualify what he said. And then a few chapters later in Luke 12, which is a passage we read a few weeks ago, Jesus says, do you think I've come to bring peace? No, I've come to bring a sword and to separate families, dividing households, three against two, two against three. And then today, he says, if you want to follow me, you must hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even life itself, and you must surrender all your possessions. Part of the problem with the way we handle texts like these is that we settle for the plain sense. And what I mean by the plain sense is the reading that hits us without any effort on our part. And many of us, especially those of us who were raised in evangelical churches and evangelical adjacent churches, were taught that that's how we're supposed to read. That whatever the Bible says plainly is what God is saying. But the fact is, a plain reading is a reading that has no salt. A plain reading is the reading you have. It's not the word God is speaking to you. So I'll say something shocking. It's Labor Day weekend. There's no one here anyway. Father Paul is out. Bishop Ed is gone. Father Brent will be gracious. I don't even think my wife is in the room, so I'm, I'm, I'm safe right now. The plain reading, that is the reading that comes to you or to me without any effort, that just seems obvious, is always wrong. It's always wrong. Because that is what I'm making of the text, not what the Lord is saying in the text. That when God speaks, it's surprising, it's salty, and it calls for a response from me, a response of love and faith and obedience and humility and patience. I, I will be able to know God is speaking because it will catch me off guard. It will call me to something I would not have been able to see as needed. So the plain reading is always wrong. That's just what I can see without faith, without the leading of the Spirit, without hope, without love. But the word the, the Lord is speaking is always a salty word. It's not plain. It moves us. And it moves us according to what we need to hear in that moment. So everything else I'm going to say today, I want to make sure you hear in that context. Whatever it is that Jesus is saying about the dead burying the dead, about coming to bring division, dividing three against two and two against three, and about hating father and mother and giving up all of our possessions, it's not what we're afraid it is. It's something hopeful. This is a word that if we hear it rightly as his word and not what we're afraid it means, not our own words spoken from fear, when we hear it as his word, it will orient us to life, to life abundant, to life filled and overflowing with goodness and peace and joy. So how do we, how do we hear it that way? I'm going to give you two analogies. One is 
The antidote to these kinds of poisonous texts is always nearby. So when, this, when a text seems poisonous or toxic to you, rather than flee from it, recognize that the antidote is close. And in this particular case, I think the antidote is in other texts around it. So we're going to look in just a moment at Philemon. And that image of the antidote being near the poison reminds me of something Origen said, and I'm going to talk a lot about him today. Early church, many people won't classify him as a father, but he is, in fact, a father of the church. He was something of a provocateur in his time, and after his death, he came to be kind of held in suspicion. And only at various points in the church's history has he kind of gotten his due. And once again, right now, people are, are discovering just how important he really was and has been to the church's teaching. But Origen said that he learned this from a rabbi in Alexandria. So we're talking, you know, the 400s. He learns that scripture is like a house filled with locked rooms. And every passage of scripture is a locked room. And there's a key outside every door of every locked room in this house of scripture. But the key that's outside the door doesn't go to the door it's nearest, it goes to some other door somewhere else in the house. So that in order to get into whatever the locked passage is that's in front of you, you have to find the key somewhere else and come back, which means of course, unless you're especially lucky or led by the spirit, you're going to have to try the key a lot of times. And in the process, you're gonna get a feel for the house because you're going to be moving around from place to place looking for, the, looking for the key, remembering which key goes with which door. So I want you to think about that as we try to get into this locked room, unless you hate father, mother, sister, and brother. And let me just add this right here. If that seems like something you're happy and ready and willing to do, that's not a good thing. <laughs> like if you're one of those people who's like, yes, Jesus, I'm with you. That's, also, that's not gospel yet, right? That's a plain reading. That's salty in the wrong way. That's not salty in the right way. So how do we get inside this text that you must give up all your possessions? You must give up all your possessions and you must hate father and mother, sister and brother. Well, well, let me tell you this one thing for sure. He doesn't mean that he wants to be a priority. God is not wanting to be the most important thing in your life by relegating everything else to secondary status. God is not the top of a priority list. God is at the heart of everyone and everything in your priority. So if I don't love God, and then if there's anything left over, love my wife and kids. And if there's anything left over, love my neighbors. It's precisely as I love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and strength that I love my neighbor as myself. And it's in loving my neighbor that I fulfill that love of God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God is not first. At the top of the list, he's first in every one of those loves. So he's first in how I love my wife, and I love my wife completely. He's first in how I love my sons, how I love my daughter, how I love my neighbors, and so on. So that's not the way in. That key doesn't work. And if we go to the New Testament reading for today, which is a small letter written from Paul to a man named Philemon, and I'm not going to take a lot of time unpacking it. Most of you will know this. The, the speculation has been, although the text does not say this explicitly, the speculation has been right from the beginning of the church's history that Philemon is a friend of Paul who has a slave named Onesimus who has escaped 
and escaped having stolen something from his master. And that this man, Onesimus, somehow ends up with Paul. Paul brings about the change in Onesimus' heart. Somehow Onesimus turns to the Lord. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon to restore that relationship. But of course this text has a kind of checkered history because it's, it's not entirely clear whether Paul is saying to him, here's your slave back and here's the money he took. Oh, and he's also your brother in Christ. Or if he's saying, this man is no longer your slave, he's your brother and you must see him otherwise. I think the clue to our text, the key, and that's its own locked room, right? And I'm not going to even try to get into that room today. But I'm going to use a key from Philemon to get back into the gospel text. You with me? The lighting is here, so I I can't actually tell if there's anyone out there unless you make noise. So if you want me to know you're there, you're going to have to make some sounds. So it opens this way. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So that's how he opens. Now, if you study Paul, you know that this is a remarkable opening because he never uses this opening, Paul a prisoner, anywhere else, at least in any of the writings that we have. Paul a prisoner, not Paul an apostle or Paul a slave. These are usual ways of introducing himself, but Paul a prisoner. And then he writes, and listen again to how he describes the relationships with everybody around him. Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, Aphia, our sister. Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. He describes them as equals. So here's the first key. At one point in his life, Paul would have been seeking these people out to arrest them. You remember what he does with Stephen. And he holds the cloaks while they stone Stephen to death. At one point in his life, Paul would have been seeking these people out as those who needed to be captured and brought to justice. But now, because he has been captured by Jesus, he's the prisoners, and they're his equals. Instead of imprisoning them, considering himself their superior, he's been captured by Jesus, and therefore set free to see them as equals. So here's here's the clue. Whenever Jesus does something that seems binding, it's actually freeing. Whenever Jesus does something that seems like a curse, it's actually a blessing. That whatever Jesus does that seems to be against you, it's actually for you. That when Jesus is trying to break the darkness around you, he overshadows it with the darkness of God. When Jesus wants to break the curse of sin on you, he curses the curse. When Jesus wants to set you free from violence, he destroys the violence. In the language of Revelation, he is the destroyer of the destroyers of the earth. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, Jesus has captured me, therefore I'm free. And Jesus has claimed me as his own, therefore I see you as equals. And then he says to Philemon, you should take Onesimus back later in the letter. And then he gives him this word. He has been separated from you for a while. So that, he has been separated from you for a while. So that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, But more than a slave, a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
So he's been separated from you for a while so that you can have him back forever, not as a slave, but as a brother in the flesh and in the Lord. So what you see here is a separation, the sword that Jesus promised to wield. Did you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring a sword. It separates in order to restore. And this is the difference. I don't expect you to remember this, but the last time I was speaking here, I talked about the difference between torture and surgery and how when you're on the table being operated on, you might not be able to tell the difference between torture and surgery. But once you're well and you look back on it, you'll recognize, yes, what I thought was torture was in fact salvation, was in fact God cutting away from me everything that needed to be cut away. So in this gospel text today, when we're told we must hate and we must give up all of our possessions, we need to hear that not as torture, but as surgery. That there is a separation happening here, but it's the separation of the great physician. It's the separation that is for a little while so that what can be given back to us is forever. And what can be given back to us is not a relationship of master and slave, but of equals in perfect mutuality. Are you with me? This is what Jesus can promise and only Jesus can promise and bring about. That he can separate you from other people in such a way that when you're restored to them, you're restored in health. You're restored in fullness. So that all that's toxic in your relationships with other people, he can cut away. He's the only one who can separate everything that's cancerous from everything in you that is whole. And that is the work of salvation. That is the work he's working on in you and me all the time. So with those two keys, I want to come back to what Jesus says about hating, about dividing three against two and two against three, about the dead burying the dead. And see how that unlocks the room. Very often, if you have your Bible with you or even on your phone, if you look at these texts, if you're using a translation that gives headings, in all of those passages in the Gospel of Luke that I've mentioned, Luke 9, Luke 12, and Luke 14, there will be some reference to cost, the cost of discipleship. You remember this? And of course, most of us know that because of a famous book, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, badly titled, The Cost of Discipleship. That's not actually the title he gave it, it was just discipleship in German. And he talks about cheap grace, and so we automatically gravitate toward, well, if it's cheap grace, we need to talk about the cost of discipleship. And it sounds like Jesus is doing that in all of these passage, passages. But Jesus is not saying that this is what it's gonna cost you to follow him. I mean, think about that for just a moment. Do you really think Jesus' words to you are, yeah, you can follow me, but I'm pretty pricey. I mean, you can get the grace for a gift of all your possessions and separation from your families. Now, we know that's not what he meant, right? Because for one thing, Peter had a mother-in-law, which means Peter had a wife, which means he was following Jesus without being separated from his wife. And there were all kinds of people around Jesus who had possessions to use to bury him, right? who used to support his ministry. So this, this is not what it plainly seems to say. What Jesus is saying, and here I'm starting to cut to the chase, is not this is what it's going to cost you to follow me, but as you follow me, I'm going to clear away from you all of these bad relations that are keeping you from being who you're called to be and living the abundant life you're called to live. 
This is not a threat, it's a promise. And it's not a price tag, this is the cost of following me. It's an assurance that nothing that is destroying you will be left to destroy you. That there's nothing in your life that's eating away at you that Jesus is just going to tell you to accept. He's going to do surgery on you and everything that's eating away at you and me, he's going to cut away as the cancer it is. That's the promise that's given us. We're going to have separations in our life, but all of those separations are for the sake of a full and final reconciliation. Origen, I mentioned him already, I'll mention him a couple more times. In his sermons on, Luke, on the Gospel of Luke, said, draws attention to that passage, let the dead bury their own dead. And this is what he says. Clearly, Jesus cannot mean this man has no right to bury his father. I mean, right at the heart of the Ten Commandments is a command to honor your father. Jesus is the one who wrote that, by the way. Jesus writes the Ten Commandments. Those are his words. So he's not suddenly changing his mind. Like, you know what, now that I've had some time to think about it, maybe you shouldn't honor your father. That's not the point. Origen says, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he says, this man has an imagined relationship to his father that he cannot reconcile with following Jesus. And in his heart, he sees himself as needing to settle everything between him and his dad before he can actually take up the work of following Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to settle all of that before you follow me. Come with me, and I'll help you settle it. And so Origen says, and this is a very nearly a quote, those who follow Jesus become their own graves and their own monuments. Because all of that stuff in our life that's unresolved, Jesus is putting to death, cutting away, clearing away, so that we're moving step by step into greater and deeper and wider health, sharing in the health that God's own life is. This is good news. So let the dead bury the dead does not mean forget about your father, love me. It means stop trying to fix those things that are out of your power to fix. Follow me and let me do the work on you that only I can do. Let me do what only I can do. Not hate your mother and father in any plain sense, but be ready to be broken free of what you imagine your relationship to them is. All right, now we're going to get into some deep waters for just a moment. I'm neither a psychologist nor the son of a psychologist, but I am really dear friends with someone who knows a lot about that. So I'm going to borrow some expertise for a moment. William James, who's a philosopher, one of the most important, I think, American philosophers, has this wonderful sentence, which I think is almost right. He says, when two people meet together, there are actually six people present. So when Father Brent and I go to coffee, it's not just the two of us there. There are at least six of us, James says. There's me as I imagine myself to be. There's me as Father Brent imagines me to be. And then there's me as I actually am. And also for him, there's Father Brent as he actually is. There's Father Brent as he imagines himself to be. And then there is Father Brent as I imagine him to be. Now, I think he's missing two people. There are actually eight, I think, present. And that is me as I imagine he imagines me to be. Right? So I'm not just sitting there thinking about myself and thinking about him. 
I'm thinking about what he's thinking about me and what I think about him. Right? Where every inhuman engagement is a hall of mirrors. Right? You're never just there with somebody. In fact, when you are, you can feel the shock of it. When you look back over your life and you think about the times you've been fully present to someone heart to heart, it stands out from everything else. Because most of the time we're living aware of ourselves, aware of ourselves. We're seeing ourselves in dozens of mirrors all around us. And only Jesus can say, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's an accusation, this is untrue, this is you. And the work of salvation, call it what you want, the work of God making us healthy the way we're meant to be healthy, is God saying, that's a lie, don't believe it. That's an accusation from the enemy. This is something you should never have believed about yourself. This is who you are. And that's not the person you think you're seeing. Those accusations you're throwing at them, you're looking at an image of them. You're looking at them as you imagine them to be, or as you fear that they are, not as they actually are. So what we all have to do is bury the dead images in our life. Let God shatter all of those mirrors so we can stand face to face. So when he says, I've come to divide three against two and two against three, what he's saying is, I'm clearing away all of the illusions. I'm shattering all of those false ideas you have about yourself and you have about those other people. It's, it's astonishing how much negative talk we carry around in our heads about who we are and about who other people are. And how much the anxiety in our, we drown in anxiety because we're dealing with projections and illusions and fantasies. You remember the last time I was here, I talked about this, that there's a fundamental difference between fantasy and imagination. Revenge can be fantasized, but reconciliation has to be imagined. And one way I want to, you to think about it now is fantasy is what happens to our imaginations when we're dominated by fear. When you're eaten up with fear, your imagination works against you. And you start to imagine that things are worse than they actually are. That you are worse than you actually are. That they are worse than they actually are. And under those conditions, in the darkness and the confusion that the enemy stirs in our lives, by showing us all of these mirror images of ourselves and other people, the only thing that's going to bring healing and peace is the clarity of the word of the Lord that shatters all of those false images, cuts all of that away, lets the dead bury the dead so that we can go into the future as the people we actually are. Right? All of that was introduction. Now here we go. When two years ago, we were getting, it's been two years, right, when we moved here? Two years ago when we began to move here, a friend of mine, a mentor, called me, Ricky Moore is his name, and he said, Chris, I need to tell you something. He's like, I don't know, I'm not saying this is the, the word of the Lord, but I feel it strongly. I want you to know that when you go, he knew I was moving to Oklahoma, when you go, you're going into your future, not into your past. I was born and raised in Oklahoma. You're going into your future, not into your past. You're going as a father and not a son. And all the things that have been over your head will be under your feet. You're going into your future, not your past. As a father, not a son. 
And all the things that are over your head, or have been over your head, will be under your feet. What he was doing was initiating that process of breaking all of the images. Because the truth of the matter is, I was afraid to be a father. I was already a father. I was well into it at that point. My youngest was seven at the time. But just because you have kids doesn't mean you're ready to be a father. Any more than just because there's a congregation, you're ready to be a pastor. Or just because you have a marriage certificate means you're ready to be a spouse. You have to grow into that. And I needed to be set free of my fear of being able to be a father. March 28th, 2021, go ahead and show this first image if you will. I was priested. And during that service, at the end of it, I was serving communion, as I will be today, if I ever stop talking here. And someone caught this picture. So this is me serving my youngest, Emery. And the, you can see like the back of a head and a shirt collar walking away. That's my father, whom I had just served. And then if you look just over Emery's shoulder, you can see another robe, gown, I like to call them, chasuble that Father Paul is wearing. So there are three fathers in this image. There's me being a father to my son in two senses. I'm the priest who's serving him the body of the Lord, and I'm his father in the flesh. My father, whom I just served, is walking away. This is the cycle, the circle of life. And Father Paul, as a priest, is observing all of this. And this image captures that moment of turning in which I'm becoming a father by serving my son and my father. The body of the son who draws us into the life of the father. When I saw this image, I nearly had a stroke later. That was going to happen later. But this was a good one. This was a good stroke. Because it captured for me, this is what's happening in my life. I'm, I'm getting past the fear of the father I don't want to be. I remember so clearly sitting in the therapist's office, just probably two years before this, three years before this, and her asking me, what's the thing you want the most? And I said, just not to hurt the people I love. And as soon as I said it, I realized, no, 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 no. I don't want to just not hurt. I want to bring life. But that tells you where my fear was, that the image of myself was as someone who was dangerous, that could hurt someone. And when you're seeing your image of yourself, you want to be set. I don't want to hurt anyone, but that's not who we are. And as soon as I said it, I heard, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be for my kids or for anyone else. Then, March 6th of this year, next image. Actually, yeah, this one. That's kind of hard to make out. But again, you see we're in our chasubles. That's Bishop Michael Owen and me sitting right back there in that amen corner. That was the day that Robbie Waddell was ordained as a priest here. Some of you were, some of you here that night. And I sat right back there, weeping saying to Bishop Mike, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Five days later, I had a stroke. My body was telling me something was happening. But here's the thing. What was happening to me was about my blood pressure, was about the, the ways in which my brain was being overmatched by what was happening in my body but I was still seeing mirrored images of myself. 
So what my body was telling me, my soul was hearing as something is wrong with me. I'm not okay. That was true. You know what wasn't true? That something was wrong with me. You hear the difference? And then, third picture. This is on Sunday, the very next week. I'm in the hospital and my daughter has come to see me. You can't really make this out, but she's in St. Francis and she's walking to my room and sees reflected in the windows an image of Mary holding Jesus. And she took that picture and sent it to me and said, Dad, I thought you'd want to see this. And it was a prayer for me that here, here I'm in the hospital, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm held. I'm held. And one last image, and I'm almost done. So this is the Friday of that week. This was taken. I hadn't slept at this point in almost three days. I was so, so, so afraid. And of course, some of that's natural. I just had a stroke and a series of strokes on the, a couple days later. But I was terrified, terrified. I wasn't sleeping at all, and I couldn't even go in the room where I'd had the stroke. And I was talking with Bishop Ed and Bishop Mike about it, and they encouraged me, why don't you just go through the entire house, anoint it, and pray for it, and declare that this, this space is safe for you. So that Friday morning, I'm not gonna get through this without crying, I woke up, I mean, woke up is not the right word. I got out of bed and I went and went through the liturgy to prepare holy water and I went to my front door and I was like, God, I'm just gonna anoint everything I see. I mean, full bore charismatic to the hilt. I mean, this is Tulsa. If you can't do it in Tulsa, you can't do it anywhere. And like this space is going to be clean. So I start at the front door, I open the door, and the first thing I see on the wall to my left is a cross and two icons. This is one of them. This is a Coptic icon of St. George. You've seen many of them slaying the dragon. And I mean, I'm half a second into this process that I've geared myself up for. I've taken one step into my house, and God directs my attention directly to that. Does anything strike you about this image? If you've seen images or sculptures or paintings of George and the dragon. The dragon is usually massive. You can barely see that thing. It's a squirrel, essentially. (laughs) And I heard God say, your enemy is never as big as it wants you to fear it is. Your enemy is never as big as it wants you to fear it is. And an image shattered. Suddenly I wasn't in a hall of mirrors or a haunted house, but in the presence of the God who's always holding me. So hear me today. Your enemy is not as big as you're afraid it is, no matter what your enemy is. And you are not who you're afraid you are, and they are not who you're afraid they are, but there is one who can clear all of that away who is clearing all of that away, who's shattering all of those lies so you can walk in the health 
and the abundance that's meant for you. And all we have to do is stand back and watch him do it. Amen? Amen. Amen.